Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. Forever Dog Just between us hey. Just between us I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I love to sing just all day, just singing little songs. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and brilliant reality television producer. <laughs> okay. Okay, so right before this, we were talking about Allison wanting to match Melissa with her perfect dog. And I was like, you should have a show called The Right Pooch, where you match people with, with rescue dogs. But first of all, let's just take a second to, sh- to really pitch that idea because it's very good. Who wants to sponsor me having a show where I, pi- where I pair people with their perfect rescue dog and it's called The Right Pooch? Exactly. NBC. NBC, I'm available. Okay, but now here's the second one. It's like marriage or mortgage on Netflix. No, this one but- is fucked up. <laughs> no, it's not fucked up. Allison takes a single person. And finds them the perfect dog and also the perfect partner. And then at the end of the episode, the person has to choose if they want the dog or the person. And I said, here's the problem is that you shoot 10 episodes. Everyone chooses the dog. I wouldn't want to watch that. That's too why? Sad. Because why can't people have both? Okay, so then people have chosen, right? All 10 episodes end. Then they have a reunion episode. Whoever chose the person they get their dog and whoever chose the dog, the person comes back and is like, I actually, and, and so at the end, the, so though you watch all the episodes and then at the very end of the reunion episode, everybody gets both. Okay. So you could only really do that for one season. Yeah. You'd have different twists for the next season because it's like F boy Island where like, how are they going to redo that twist? But anyway, the thing is, is that then sometimes the person will be like, I actually never wanted this partner to begin with. And then they reject them and they go home. <laughs> I think we have different viewing pleasures because that sounds horrifying to me. <laughs> it's so good. And what is it called if it's choosing between the person and the dog? Um, Rescue or romance? Oh, that's pretty good. Something like that, right? <laughs> anyway, this is Just Between Us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. You would watch Rescue or Romance. Don't lie. I don't think I could ever handle somebody not picking the dog. Okay, and then if they really don't want the dog, like at the finale, they don't want the dog, the dog goes gets rescued by someone else. Me. You, you, and then it ends with Allison has nine dogs. <laughs> I'm like wheezing. Well, we have got a great episode for you guys that somehow gets even better than what we just talked about. I know. This week, we're going to be asking Matthew W. Johnson, PhD, some tough questions about drug research and psychedelics. 
this interview brought me immense joy. I've been looking forward to it. I'm so into the idea of psychedelics and mental health treatment. Can't get enough of it. I'm terrified to try it myself. But can't get <laughs> enough of the idea of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and later, we're going to be discussing brand deals. How do you do them ethically? How do you? How do we navigate them? It's something I'm not sure about. So I figured we'd talk about it. Yep. But first, we have to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means. Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Lainey, Chicago. She, they. So, TLDR. How do you go about forgiving yourself for your past mistakes after sobriety? Hi, Allison and Gabby. I've been a fan of yours for years. I can't tell you how much you both influenced my life and have been a comfort to me as I've moved through my major life events. Mm. Very nice. (laughs) I'm 11 months sober the day I'm writing this, and it's truly the best thing I've ever done for myself. I love being sober, and I feel like I'm the best version of Lainey that I've ever been. However, I struggled with alcohol for years without realizing I had a problem. CPTSD is a real bitch. Mm-hmm. The last year of my drinking was the worst of it. I was someone I don't recognize. I would hook up with friends, not caring if I hurt them. I would blow up on people, blackout drunk, embarrass my friend every time we went out. When I started dating my boyfriend, I was cruel, angry, and would have horrible flashbacks and hallucinations where I would lock myself in my bathroom and scream. He told me after I got sober that I also hit him once. Getting sober and realizing the hurt and pain I've caused the people I love has eaten me alive. I've made amends and everyone has said they've forgiven me, but I can't believe them. I'm horrified I have the capacity to be that person. I wish people didn't forgive me in some ways. It feels like everyone has moved forward and I'm still stuck in this area of my life. My therapist, my boyfriend, and my friends have all said that I need to move on, since they have, but I have no idea how. How do you forgive yourself for things that shouldn't be forgiven? Maybe a better question. Should I feel guilty for the person I was? I feel like letting go of guilt would be like absolving myself. I know why I drank. I know that my behavior wasn't what I would ever do sober, but I can't get past this. I hope this doesn't come across as too dark or complainy, but any thoughts about the topic would be appreciated. Thank you for reading. Uh, what made you pick this one? Because I think whether or not someone has been sober, I think that a lot of people regret their past. And I think a lot of people grow and change and can still feel tied to the past versions of themselves that hurt other people. And I think this whole idea of like accountability versus absolution is is really interesting. Mm-hmm. My instinct, my gut is saying, obviously, to forgive yourself. Mm-hmm. But I, I think another thing that really helps, at least with me, is to realize that's not even you anymore, you know? So, yeah. like, in a way, you have to, yes, you have to, like, form a, a healthy relationship with the version of you that wasn't sober and the version of you that caused this pain, but also really recognizing that who you are now is a different person than who that person was. Yeah, it's hard because uh, you are right in terms of the instinct that making amends is part of sobriety and that these people deserved an apology and that it's on them to forgive you. Sometimes people that you've hurt while in active addiction don't forgive you and you just have to live with that and you can't rely on the other people. But these people are telling you that they forgive you. And all you can do is just like act different every day and like make sure that you are not repeating those behaviors at all. I mean, 
it's so hard because things are so black and white. Like the fact that you did hit your boyfriend is inexcusable, but it's also like life is so nuanced and life is so complicated and there's so much around things that happen. And, you know, like it's hard to have these conversations where we answer questions for people with you know, they want these absolutes or they ask us for sort of absolutes. Um, And a lot of the situations are so individualized and so much between like more between the two people in the situation than like us to sit here and go like, well, that's unforgivable. And you specifically, you know what I mean? Like sometimes it's like easy. I could see someone like listening to this and being like, well, there's no coming back from that. Like if you've ever hit a partner, there's no coming back for that, which like is correct. But also like if it comes down to like between you and your boyfriend, like the forgiveness and the like intimacy and the the level of understanding and the ways in which you specifically make it up to him. You know, I think you're very lucky that things didn't escalate in a way where you ended up in jail, where you ended up with charges, where you end like I think even in, you know, a lot of people in active addiction do end up with like a lot of long term problems legally or, you know, things like that. So you in a lot of ways, you you really should be grateful that you have been given this chance of rebirth and change without any more baggage than just than what you've had interpersonally and that these friends do forgive you and that like I think like coming to it from a place of like extreme gratitude you know like it seems really really awful but like you've come out of it relatively unscathed and with this mindset now of things will only get better going forward and I I try to think about it a little bit too like what it would be like you know to be your partner and for me to say I forgive you, but then for you to not forgive yourself or to not be right. able to move past it. It keeps your partner in that place also. Yeah, like I think part of what I would want in forgiving my partner is for us to start a new chapter and for mm-hmm. us to move forward and mm-hmm. for you to still be in this loop of hating yourself and judging yourself and not forgiving yourself. You're sort of preventing that from happening and you're you're potentially negatively affecting these people who are giving you this second chance. Mm -hmm. And so it's really like, who are you serving by not forgiving yourself? You know? Yeah. And I don't think you're serving anybody. You know, it's interesting. I just recently, I had a a huge falling out with someone who was an addict who was sober and then relapsed and then was especially cruel to me. And I was talking about it and and I had just cut them out of my life and stuff. And then I was talking about it to another friend of mine. And I was like, you know what? Like, I want to check on this person. So I emailed him. I don't know what I was expecting, but I was just kind of like, hey, this super hurt my feelings. And like, what happened? Like, what was that? I mean, this, this was like 2016 that this happened. And the person wrote back like a such a long email being like, I am so glad to hear from you. I have been thinking because I was like, maybe they just never thought about it again. I have been thinking about how I treated you like so long. And it was like, I I am different now. I am all these things, whatever. And it was like a big relief to me, actually, to like not have that on my shoulders thinking about that. Because in my head, I was like, this person hasn't changed in seven years. They're exactly the same. They're probably, you know, just like this or whatever. And so to your friends and to your boyfriend, it it probably feels like such a relief 
And I think you just have to commit to the sobriety, like make sure that you are committed to the sobriety because people can really change. People really can. I have, you know, my dad was an addict, an alcoholic, and he has changed so much. Um, He's changed a lot. And I do, I'm not perfect. I do have a hard time sort of forgiving and all of this stuff. But like, then we had a good phone conversation yesterday and I was like, he's a different guy. Like some days your boyfriend might be like, you know what? I actually feel a little icky today about, you know, like it's not a linear, it's not like a, I forgive my dad and now every day moving forward, we're forgiven, you know? Yeah, and I think also examining why do you feel like you can't forgive yourself? Like what messages are you internalizing that make you feel like you can't forgive yourself? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And are those messages true? Or are they Mm -hmm. just sort of like this societal idea that people who have issues with alcohol are unforgivable, irredeemable. And Mm -hmm. and is that even based in truth? Like think about, I I don't know if you're part of a a 12-step program, but maybe you've been around other people who are sober and I'm sure they're wonderful, lovely people who you wouldn't hold to the same standards that you're holding yourself to. It's hard. I mean, people in AA, I've been to a lot of AA meetings in my life. People in AA have really tough stories. Like hurt people hurt people, you know, like someone who grew up with like abuse in the home who then became an addict who then drove drunk and hit someone with their car. Like it's just cycle. It's it's a horrible cycle. And so linear forgiveness is is hard and you try to make as much amends as you can. But it's hard. I mean, I think the ways in which like addiction and forgiveness are portrayed in media is so inaccurate and so one to one. And like, I just think you don't need to put the pressure on yourself that everything's going to be perfect. Yeah. In a lot of ways, you know, your loved one seems to have given you this great gift of Mm -hmm. of forgiving you. And so maybe Mm -hmm. you can give them the gift back of forgiving yourself. You know, what might be interesting is maybe if you want to do some volunteer work, it might help you feel like you're closing in on some of your emotional debts. You know, my dad does leads meetings at jails and stuff. And I feel like sometimes he is doing that to make up for all the bad he put in the world. Yeah. Like, how can you use your past experience to help other people Mm -hmm. so that it can be a source of help and love Mm -hmm. and kindness versus all bad? Exactly. That's a great idea. (laughs) Thanks. <laughs> Turns out I have a lot of experience with addicts. <laughs> if you want to submit your international questions, send it to just between us pod at gmail.com. That's just between us pod at gmail.com. Up next, we have an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Matthew Johnson. So stay tuned. Just between us, it's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting, Tough Questions. Our guest this week is Matthew W. Johnson, PhD, who is a John Hopkins medicine professor in psychedelics. Basically, you are like one of the first people to have a position in academics studying psychedelics, right? Right. That was so cool of me to see. And you obviously worked so hard to get to that place. So can you talk about your research? What is your research in? So I study all kinds of things about psychedelics. Even outside of psychedelics, I study really all things drugs. And more and more of my time has been taken up by choice, um, focusing on the psychedelics. So within the psychedelic research, really, I, I, I study the basic effects of psychedelics, like what essentially they do to the mind, what they do to behavior, what they do to the brain. And there's value in that. 
you know, even before we get to therapeutics, but then I also study therapeutic applications. So examining psychedelics, the primary one being psilocybin, which is in magic mushrooms, as a potential medication to treat a number of disorders. Uh, we did work uh, looking at a large number of cancer patients with substantial depression and anxiety, found that psilocybin was had a huge effect in making only a single dose causing long-term reductions in depression and anxiety. And those folks have done work in people with major depressive disorder. So outside of cancer, people with depression, um, again, found uh, large reductions in depression. A line of research that was probably the most unique, uh, in other words, it wasn't really picking up on any older thread, was I started 13 years ago, a line of research using psilocybin to, to treat tobacco addiction. So helping people quit smoking. And that's been really successful, had a successful pilot, small study that had large success rates, had a, um, in the midst of a follow-up, larger randomized study, actually just a couple of weeks ago, received um, funding from the National Institute on Drug Abuse to continue that work, um, which, as far as I know, is the first time the U.S. federal government has funded a treatment study with a classic psychedelic in 50 years, like since the late 1960s. Really excited to move forward with that line of research, but it's studied a number of other things. Uh, did the first human work with this compound salvinorin A. You might know it as, as in salvia divinorum, a very powerful, um, smokable, not a classic psychedelic, but a very, whatever you want to call it, psychedelic or hallucinogenic compound. That was the first blinded human research showing effects of that compound. Also, I've done some work with dextromethorphan, which you might know as robotripping. So the active agent in certain uh, varieties of cough syrup that is a relative of ketamine and PCP in terms of the way it works in the brain and is very psychedelic at, at high doses. And so I have my hands in a number of research studies. I'm about to start studies looking at using psilocybin to treat opioid addiction, to treat PTSD, to look at creativity. Also have an upcoming study using LSD to treat chronic pain. So it's really sort of across the, you know, looking at these psychedelics as therapeutics for you know, a wide variety of indications. I was wondering if you could speak a little to the history of psychedelic research, because we sort of started and then the government stopped it. <laughs> and then now it seems to be starting back up again, right? Yeah. So there's really probably no other parallel in science where this was, uh, and a lot of people don't realize this these days, but psychedelics, mainly LSD, was at the cutting edge of psychiatry and neuroscience, um, starting back in the, the late 1940s and extending until late 60s, early 70s, um, around the time when LSD became you know, popular for non-medical use. They, they never thought that it would be a popular quote-unquote street drug because of such the intense effects that aren't, aren't very reliable at all in terms of a reliable, a reliable euphorian type effect. But nonetheless, that's what happened in the late 60s. LSD became very popular. That, the, the research stopped for decades, um, not because it, it was determined that the research couldn't be done safely, um, but really as just this conflation with the unsupervised recreational use. Mm-hmm. Um, so a failure to recognize that, well, yeah, the risk profile is different. There were definitely some casualties in using you know, psychedelics without 
any constraints. Um, there were some vulnerable people that were harmed long-term that had some vulnerabilities that would have been screened out in careful medical research. Um, there were some people that had bad trips that caused problems in their lives, some accidents that happened. Also, a large number of people that claim taking LSD just for fun back in those days prompted a, a powerful experience that positively shaped their life. I mean, these anecdotes abound. Um, Steve Jobs, there's all kinds of creative uh, folks, all kinds of folks in the tech world. There's one Nobel Prize winner, Carrie Mullis, that said he wouldn't have been, had invented PCR had it not been for his experiences with psychedelics. He could sort of see himself weaving down the, the DNA and watching it split. And, you know, gosh, we get in the world of music and other arts. I mean, the, the anecdotes are just you know, absolutely countless. I always think of there's the the, the Beatles before LSD and the Beatles <laughs> after LSD. It was a big uh-huh. band, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that was a big shift. So there's a lot of good and bad that was caused when LSD was just used pretty loosely. And, and, and to be clear, these drugs have continued to be used, whatever you want to call it, recreationally, outside of supervised research. But there were some early, really promising findings using LSD to treat cancer related to stress. These were terminal cancer patients back in the day where it was just this profound change in their quality of life. And they had these transcendental type experiences that can often happen with a high dose of these compounds. And there were really promising findings for the treatment of alcoholism, really big effects. I mean, look better than anything that we have today in terms of a medication. Wow. But all of that research, so the rug was pulled out from underneath it. And there was this just in the late 60s, early 70s, and just a really strong professional marginalization. It went from cutting edge to being sort of uh, a taboo, like a career killer, if you were interested in psychedelics. And I mean, there was just a whole, there was the association with the counterculture and everything that, everything that the 60s really now have come to represent in terms of societal change, you know, the anti-Vietnam War Mm -hmm. movement, um, women's rights, civil rights, you know, psychedelics were in the mix, but like they didn't cause those things, right? It was, society, <laughs> it was the problems with society. Like the biggest cause of the anti-Vietnam War protest was the Vietnam War. Right, um, <laughs> right, right, right. But nonetheless, it scared like a lot of people in society. Like those things scared a lot of people. They really saw, you know, LSD as part of that, part of what's causing these young people to go crazy and want to radically transform society. And then there was a failure of the media to distinguish the risk profile that you see in, you know, any old use, you know, by a bunch of teenagers. Some were really helped by it, but others were harmed, you know, and that's Mm -hmm. what you get in an uncontrolled situation with a powerful tool. And then conflating that with the risk profile you see in carefully controlled medical research, where you have screening of participants, you have monitoring, preparation, and then they're taking it with people that they trust who are in the session room with them and who mm-hmm. can reassure them if they start to have some anxiety, what would be called a bad trip. But in fact, some of that difficult psychological material can really be therapeutically helpful and highly valued in the long term if it's in a safe therapeutic environment where someone can work through um, those difficulties um, and then follow up care you know, to help the person process their experience, um, discussions after the experience is over in the days following. The media sort of was highly you know, exuberant 
in sort of the early 60s, but that really started, that changed. And I mean, you had things like at the very end of the 1960s, the Manson murders, which were the biggest crime. It wasn't, I think, until the OJ murder case that something of a similar magnitude popped up in, in culture in terms of like a high profile true crime case that just riveted society. And there were these like gruesome murders of one high profile, you know, celebrity and mm-hmm. a bunch of other folks, literally a cult. And Charles Manson looks really credible. He used LSD as part of his brainwashing of his cult. And there were these horrific, I mean, it was just the worst associations possible. The murder, they were all brainwashed into thinking there was a coming race war, mm-hmm. that they were going to be part. I mean, it's just horrible, evil stuff. You couldn't ask for a worse association yeah. for, for a psychedelic drug or anything else. All of this sort of, it just collapsed. It became the most unpopular thing. Again, it would have been a career killer in the early, mid-1970s to move into this field. And what caused the shift now? Because now there's, there is some, re- obviously you're leading this research that is being done. What, like, government regulations loosened up? They're now, like, allowing this sort of research again? You know, that's really not it. Um, there's still Schedule One substances. So this, the Controlled Substances Act, which was put into, into effect in 1970, included, you know, most of the, of the psychedelics as Schedule One compounds, uh, meaning they don't have any accepted medical use. Um, however, that's still the case. And it's possible, there's lots of hoops to jump through. You've got to get permission from the FDA and the DEA, and you have to have appropriate credentials. And we jumped through those hoops. You know, those are in place. It was technically possible to do research, human research with psychedelics, say, like in the late 70s or early 80s. It was just politically Mm. ostracized. Mm. It was more at the level of like, you know, if you were a young researcher and you mentioned it to your department chair, they would have said, you know, no way in hell are you doing that in my academic department. Or the idea of getting funding from anybody, like who's going to fund that research? Mm-hmm. Like, don't you know, this is the stuff that makes people go crazy and jump out of windows. Like, why mm-hmm. would I want to be associated with this horrible thing, this thing that Charlie Manson used to brainwash people into murderers? Like, you know, so mm-hmm. um, it was really that marginalization. And so sometimes it's incorrectly stated that technically, you know, that they prohibited research. Now they've allowed it. It really took time. The answer is time. It took a couple of generations to pass for those older folks who were really subject to that stigma during that time to, you know, retire and, you know, pass away before mm-hmm. a, a newer generation um, could look at it with fresh eyes and not to forget the risks, not to forget that like, yeah, there, there were casualties and there still are casualties from psychedelics, but to have more of a sober balanced view and the way we would look at, for example, opioids. Um, and yes, they're overused in chronic pain. And we obviously, as a society, have learned a lot about that and have in part corrected. But opioids are still indispensable in the practice of medicine for like acute traumatic pain. You break mm-hmm. your hip or your femur, you're going to get and you'll want to get morphine or you know oxycodone, fentanyl. Mm-hmm. You're going to get one of those in, in the drip in the hospital. You know, when you're in that traumatic pain, the problems come in where you you know, Mm -hmm. you're given a supply of it to take every day, you know, continually in chronic pain. But, you know, but we don't look at the risk profile of street heroin use the same as we do, you know, the well-controlled use of of morphine, which is essentially the same drug that your grandma might get 
if she unfortunately breaks her hip and ends up you know, in the hospital. Um, pharmacologically, basically the same exact thing going on in terms of the risk benefit profile, night and day. I, mean, mm-hmm. I live in Baltimore where, where you know, heroin is, is the you know, hard drug. I mean, you drive past bus stops and you're probably going to see, take a tour throughout town, you're going to see people nodding on heroin. Everyone in Baltimore knows the dope nod. Um, what it looks like, even if you have nothing to do with, you know, heroin, just because it's around so much. But we, you know, we look at that so much differently than we do the cautious use in the right context. So I think, you know, we really need to look at these psychedelics in the same way. Can we shift a little into the therapeutic uses of these psychedelics and what is so promising and exciting about them? Yeah, the exciting thing, there's a few things that it's the big effects. In other words, not just that you know, when it helps. And often when you get a medication approved, especially if, the, you know, the trials, you know, they'll typically have hundreds of participants and you find with, you know, say 600 participants that this, you know, novel SSRI, you know, it reduces depressive symptoms on average, but the effects are typically pretty small. And I don't want to dismiss, like, I don't want SSRIs pulled from the market. Like there mm. are definitely people who have been helped by Prozac and the other uh, modern antidepressants. And so I'm all for having more tools in the toolbox than fewer. But nonetheless, on average, they are um, known for having a, a modest effect. Now that could, again, that could be critical, especially if you're at some of the border of suicide. Yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. Might, that small effect might be the difference between death or not. So again, I'm not dissing on uh, on those drugs, but it's also appropriate to keep looking broadly for something that might work better for some people. And you just get these so far, the field is seeing these large reductions in depression. And also, I'd say in other disorders, like with smoking cessation, we're seeing very high quit rates that are sustained, similar in the treatment of, of alcohol use disorder or alcoholism. And you also, the other paradigm shifting thing is that you get this from not the chronic you know, daily use of these substances, like most medications or most psychiatric medications. You get it from only like one, two, or three exposures in the various studies. Wow. And it's the idea that you're prompting this long-lasting change. And there's a big question about like, how in the world is this, if you only take it once or twice, like how does it make you less depressed six months later? And I've written about it, this in the scientific literature. I really think the answer is that it's because it's more akin to psychotherapy than it is to traditional medications that you know, address your symptoms at more of the surface level. It prompts psychotherapeutic process, this radical introspection, um, ability to look at one's problems from different vantage points. We've shown, and now others have replicated, an increase in personality openness, this domain of openness to experience. That's a good part of a formula for overcoming any number of psychiatric or mental health disorders. Just having the flexibility to look at things from a novel way. Oh, Maybe I'm not just a failure, you know, even though I've tried dozens of times to quit smoking. You know, maybe I'm defined by much more than that. Maybe I just haven't tried it quite the right way yet. You know, these types of things, this openness to possibilities. You know, may, maybe I'm not just born a failure. You know, these types of thoughts that we all as humans have, but are overexpressed in, in depression. And you know that no one likes me. I'm never going to, you know, succeed. I'm never going to. All of these self-persecutory thoughts, I mean, people can step outside of that and look at themselves the way they might look at a friend or a loved one or just a perfect stranger mm-hmm. when they're saying those things. And it's easier in that circumstance to say, well, you're not like, gosh, you haven't looked at the hand you've been given and look at what you have achieved despite the adversities that you've 
you've had and, and have some hope and some faith. It's like, I think in these sessions, people often have experiences where they're able to look at themselves in that same way. It's not like just that the, the symptoms are acutely masked of the disorder. It's more about people have these profound psychological insights about the nature of their disorder. And they really can come to psychological resolution of those disorders. It's not just in the session. It's a whole process. It's preparing for that session because it seems to happen best when you go into this process willing to completely let go, willing to completely um, surrender to the drug experience, absorb not to fight it. It's best to be in the care of, like we do in our studies, two guides or therapists in the room that, that you've developed a rapport with. You're comfortable crying like a baby in front of, for example, if that's what comes up, that's exactly what you should be doing to fully experience and embrace whatever emotions you have and work through it. And then discussion about the experience afterwards. So it's really this biological facilitation of psychotherapy that really can get to the heart of a lot of these disorders. It can often look more like a cure you know, and not for everyone and nothing works for everyone, but when it oftentimes when it works right, it looks more like a cure than it does symptom relief. Wow. Now, are there specific, because there's a, there's a variety of different psychedelics that are being researched, right? And are certain ones seem to do better with certain disorders? Is that kind of being made clear or are they all treating all different disorders? How's that? So we don't know yet. It's too early. Now, there are some different psychedelics that have been, have been explored for different disorders, but we haven't compared them yet. So, for example, MDMA, which is some considered a psychedelic, some people don't. I consider it a psychedelic. It's not a so-called classic psychedelic. Because classic psychedelics are psilocybin, LSD, DMT, which is in ayahuasca. They activate a certain type of su a subtype of serotonin receptor, the serotonin 2A receptor. MDMA works in a different way by releasing serotonin and therefore activates a broad number of serotonin receptors, but has a lot of commonalities. This whole idea of like it's biologically facilitated psychotherapy, that's just as true for MDMA. So in more ways than not, I think it's, it's a very similar medical model. MDMA has shown incredible promise for treating PTSD. Now, psilocybin hasn't been studied for PTSD yet in the modern era. I'm about to start a study doing just that, within the coming months. So we'll see potentially, and even that's not going to be a head-to-head -head study. If that study looks successful with using psilocybin to treat PTSD, future research could look at comparing the two, like which one is better. And there's some people that conduct these types of therapy sessions underground. Um, there's lots of folks that have gone down to South America. It's become mm -hmm. popular with certain veterans groups to do ayahuasca ceremonies. Mm -hmm. which, again, that's going to be more similar to psilocybin um, in terms of the way it works than the ayahuasca ceremonies in South America or Costa Rica, Jamaica, what have you, who claim that it was incredibly helpful in overcoming the PTSD. So we don't know yet if one is better than the other. In fact, in the future, they might be used in combination. Um, sometimes in underground therapy, they'll They'll start someone on MDMA and then depending on how someone responds, because that sort of can be a, a softer, it can be incredibly difficult process to go through. It's not an easy form of therapy by any stretch, but the nature of the so-called bad trip is very different. Reality doesn't shatter <laughs> at a, the way it can with psilocybin or LSD. And there's one, you know, like the work treating addiction has mainly been done with psilocybin and LSD in the older era. 
but there's one, um, they're early, but some promising early results of, of a colleague, Ben Sessa, that's been using MDMA to treat alcohol use disorder. So we'll have to see. Some of them have been studied for different things so far, but we don't know whether how they would do head to head compared to each other. Right. And my best guess is that many of the things that we're seeing for psilocybin treatment would also very likely be treated with LSD, perhaps even better. We don't know that yet. But again, psilocybin and LSD are closer cousins in terms of the way they work compared to MDMA. What are your thoughts on microdosing? Because it's very different to every day take a little bit of psilocybin or on your own versus doing these therapeutic sessions or under the supervision of therapists and psychiatrists. Mm-hmm. Do you view those as like two completely different things? Are you supportive of both? They're very different things. The important thing to know about microdosing is that far and away, the treatment model that's been used in modern and the older era of psychedelic research has been the heroic dose. And sometimes people say recreational dose, but in fact, in our studies where we've had people with plenty of recreational history, they'll say that the doses we use are larger than most recreation. It's not the dose that the one would even want to go to a concert on. Most people, there's mm-hmm. always some knucklehead that you know, doesn't <laughs> do anything like whatever, but most reasonable people that might dabble in psychedelics wouldn't, if they're at Burning Man, they'd want to go back to their tent and hunker yeah, down. Yeah, lay down. Rather than, <laughs> right. It's just like too much for social interaction. Sure. Um, it's the type of thing that someone at a concert might be, they might just like freak out because they're surrounded by all these strangers and they get hauled out by the paramedics and the police. And then mm. obviously that just escalates and spirals. But yeah, they're heroic doses. So mo- virtually all the research is, is with that. There's only been a handful of studies that have really rigorously looked at microdosing and you really need double blind conditions and because the claimed effects are relatively subtle, but the really rigorous work that's been done in the few studies with microdosing has failed to support any of the claimed benefits. So it hasn't shown cognitive enhancement. In fact, in some ways it looks like a like it impairs someone's ability, just a tiny dose of LSD impairs someone's ability to judge time accurately. Now in the context of you know, full-on psychedelic therapy, having a, a timeless and spaceless experience is part of what we call the mystical experience, which is associated with therapeutic um, outcomes. But the model with microdosing is to go about your everyday you know, life. Like mm. you, you want to judge time accurately. You know, <laughs> right. If you're doing pretty much anything, you know, driving a car, doing your work, like mm-hmm. taking care of people, you know. So it's only shown a little bit of impairment. Now, it may be that those few studies haven't done it the right way. Um, so they've done more of acute dosing models, like they'll give the tiny dose of LSD or psilocybin in the lab, look at the effects, let the person go when they're done. They haven't done the whole, you know, there's different models out there, but many of them are like, you know, take it once every four days. Mm. You know, it may take time for those beneficial effects to start making their appearance. So that's what some people are saying. So there's one study that's done like that, but they only looked at safety outcomes. They didn't look at benefits. So it's still a very much an open question. I do think if there is something there, it's a different model. I mean, it's going to be more like a traditional psychiatric drug. And again, I'm not against that, but it would be, you know, it's a drug that you have to keep taking on a regular basis. It's not going to be the same thing as having this overwhelming experience that you learn from mm-hmm. and that changes you long-term. It's going to be, you know, this maintenance of something you're, you're tweaking the brain a little bit whether you're taking it every day or once every three or four days, but it's still a chronic dosing regimen. So it's more like a traditional antidepressant. I mean, people make plenty of claims about creativity and about cognitive um, enhancement. 
yeah, I'm skeptical. I'm, you know, I want to see the research and I'm going to be doing some of that, that research. But, you know, my best bets that there's something there uh, is going to be on the antidepressant effects. It wouldn't be surprising at all if augmenting the, the serotonin system in a chronic fashion with the microdose of a psychedelic would have antidepressant effects. I mean, all of the standard antidepressants, your traditional antidepressants going back to the 1950s, they all work by augmenting the serotonin system in a chronic mm-hmm. fashion. So it wouldn't be that surprising. And the most convincing personal anecdotes I've been told about microdosing, the most convincing ones are in that category of treating people's depression. So I think it's absolutely worthy of pursuit. Um, I do think, I mean, I'm interested in the big effects. I'm most interested in the heroic doses. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's the thing that's truly different and I think has the potential to be a real game changer. And, you know, microdosing, probably not so much. You might have a better, you know, Prozac or a better Adderall, a better modafinil, perhaps, but it's not going to be that different. It's, again, a drug you have to keep taking on a regular basis. But potentially with less side effects, right? Potentially. (laughs) Like a lot of folks will say, well, you know, like I'm interested in like, okay, what are the, if there's cognitive enhancing effects, how do these compare to, you know, just a low dose of Adderall um, or modafinil, which have very clear, depending on the domain you're talking about, have some pretty clear effect. You know, like nicotine actually has the most evidence in terms of true learning enhancement, not just combating fatigue, but there's plenty of drugs that can have cognitive enhancing effect. Even like caffeine, again, in terms of increasing increasing vigilance and combating fatigue, um, especially if you're not tolerant, if you're only using it like once every three or four days, like 200 milligrams of caffeine, it's nothing to sneeze at. So I want to see how, like, how special these effects are. And it might be special and it might not. Like some people have said, when I've said this, they said, well, yeah, but you know, Adderall, you know, amphetamine, you're going to get a lot of tolerance to it. Well, you get tolerance to LSD and psilocybin too, and if, but yeah. you're not going to get that tolerance to amphetamine if you only take it every four days. Mm-hmm. You know, so I want to see things on a head-to-head Maybe there are less side effects. I just want to make sure I'm, you know, I'm open. <laughs> you know, we just have to do the research to see. I mean, but it has been concerned. You know, sometimes people screw up and they go for a microdose, and the next thing you know, <laughs> the walls start waving. What's that about? Uh oh. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have to get to work. <laughs> right. And hopefully you're not driving a car or you know yeah. taking care of your infant or you know. I mean. There's some concerns there, especially as people are doing it now in the Wild West. And I don't know, they're just, even the way they, they judge their dose, like they'll take a little pair of scissors and cut up a piece of blotter paper into tiny little pieces. Not a good way to, <laughs> you know, one of those pieces could have all of the dose in it and the other nine pieces might not have any in it, much in it. Do you have a sense of how long these heroic doses last? Like, is it a lifetime? Are there going to be, do you think there'll need to be booster sessions? According to my dad, it's a lifetime. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of folks that say, like, it's now been 50 years and they say, they still say, you know, like Steve Jobs did, or and he said something along, along the lines of doing LSD was one of the most important things that he ever did. And people don't typically change that attribution you know, decades and decades later. So there's lots of examples of that. In terms of formal research, I think the longest term thing that our colleagues at New York University did a very similar study with cancer patients like the one we did. And they did a follow-up study at about five years afterwards for the people, not everyone was still living, but the people that were still living, their attribution in terms of decreases in depression and anxiety looked unchanged. Wow. You know, I, I did a long-term uh, for smoking cessation on average at two and a half years after their target quit date. 
and found still 60% of people were biologically verified as abstinent. So we give them a breath and a urine test to make sure they haven't been smoking. And yet those are incredibly high rates. I mean, the best, med- even at six months out, the best medications only get up to 20, 30% something in that ballpark success rates. And so here, you know, two and a half years later, to be 60% is, you know, really high. Now that's a, you know, pilot research. It wasn't a randomized control group there. So it was early. So we'll see whether that holds up. But if it does, that would be something else that's suggestive of long-term efficacy. I mean, there are accounts of people that, that overcame, and I've done some of the survey research of, of people that, that took a psychedelic and they just quit an addictive substance. And I've done surveys on tobacco, alcohol, cocaine, methamphetamine, opioids, wow. cannabis. There's stories of all those types where people, you know, and typically they didn't take the substance with therapeutic intent. They were just taking it for fun or for exploration or their buddy scored it and figured what the heck. And lo and behold, they thought, you know, like, what the hell am I doing? And they stopped whatever that substance is. And sometimes those people are telling this story 20 years later or more. So yeah, I think that it, there's the potential to have these like lifelong you know, effects. That said, I think there's also room that we need to move towards this in research for boosters because not everyone, can you help that? Not everyone is helped, you know, even, hey, 60% sounds great unless you're in the other 40%, right? <laughs> right? right? So what about those? What if they had additional sessions? Depression might be a little different than these other things. And we, we've yet to see truly like really long-term outcomes there yet. It could be that in something like depression, which is not the cancer-related variety, which I think because it's based more on a, a something concrete, my guess is that's more sustainable, but something like major depressive disorder, what we normally just think of as, as depression, that might be something where for certain people, a booster dose every six months might be helpful. I've, I'm actually starting a study um, soon with psilocybin to treat opioid use disorder, and I've built into that a, a, a booster session six months later people randomized or not to get the booster session to see whether under placebo, you know, comparison conditions to see whether that would continue to, you know, decrease chances of relapse. So I I think there's going to be room for both. It's miraculous that you ever see it with any frequency seem to have this once and done like for your life effect. And sometimes it looks like that. That said, we don't want to exclusively focus on that as amazing as that is. If there's someone who was helped, you know, and it gave them kind of a boost for several months, but now they feel like they're falling back into the same routine, old routines, like why not? We need to do the research, but why not at least investigate whether that could be helpful? I think as a field, we've been hesitant because we're afraid this is going to look like, oh, now we're training them into this into addiction. Well, if you want to call once every three or six months addiction, like, okay. (laughs) I mean, you know, we're not talking about taking it as in the case with microdosing, like on a regular every day or several times a week basis. I'm going to guess that there are a lot of people listening to this that are thinking, I want to try this. <laughs> but what does it look like in terms of when, is there a timeline for when this might be more widely available outside of clinical studies? Yeah. So it depends on phase three trials. Right now, MDMA has completed one phase three trial and, and, and they're running a second. and depending on the results of that trial, MDMA could be approved in the next couple of years. Um, Psilocybin is a little bit behind. So there's a couple of sponsors that have moved into phase 2B trials. Um, So they're going to soon to be into phase 3 trials. Phase 3 is that 
FDA phase where they can approve it as a medicine, mm. larger study. Um, and if those results hold up, you know, that could be you know, three, four, five years down the road. Probably for depression might be first, but then maybe close behind, you know, smoking cessation and alcohol use disorder. Within five years, I suspect we're going to have at least one, maybe more of these psychedelics approved um, for the treatment of disorders. Friend of mine was doing ketamine for depression in a doctor's office, in a controlled. Mm -hmm. So that one is is on the market already. Right. Ketamine is a weird one. I mean, it it's also not a classic psychedelic, but at a high enough dose, it's very much, broadly speaking, a psychedelic. It has these reality altering characteristics that you get with a psychedelic. It's been already approved in medicine for many decades as an anesthetic. I mean, it's what you put people out with to do surgery. So these are actually much lower doses than those that are required to knock someone out. I mean, mm -hmm. That makes, makes sense. They're relatively modest doses in terms of their psych psychedelic effect, the ones that are being used. Nonetheless, they are psychedelic. And yeah, it's been considered a breakthrough in the treatment of depression. I mean, you get immediately acting results. One of the problems with SSRIs, they, if they work at all, they're not going to work for two, three, four weeks um, after taking them. Ketamine seems to work right after, like people immediately feel less depressed, like we've seen with psilocybin. The results with, the, with ketamine, the antidepressant effects on average last a week or two. It could be that psilocybin is much better in terms of that sustainability, but we don't really know whether it's a difference between the drugs or the difference in the way they're being used. Typically, ketamine, at least the, the FDA-approved formulation, um, Spravato, now there's a lot of variability because there's a lot of off-label use, which can use higher doses and use it in a different way. But the, the approved form of ketamine for depression is not really being treated like psychedelic therapy. In other words, it's not saying you're going to have an experience that you could learn from and we're going to discuss with you. It's more of like, yeah, you, you might feel a little weird. Ignore that. That's a side effect. Mm -hmm. um, but just, you know, it'll last like an hour, 45 minutes, but get through it. You know, don't worry about it. Those are side effects. But this it's just going to automatically, you know, work in your brain to make you less depressed. It does appear to have some, you know, it works, like I said, in that way. But could you get longer standing effects if you treated it like a psychedelic? Like some of the ketamine clinics, some of them are doing it like that. And there was some old research in Russia um, in the 1990s that was using high doses of ketamine to treat addiction that had very long standing effects. And they were, they were treating it like a psychedelic. In other words, pay attention to this altered experience. That's the whole point. And we're hoping you could learn something from this altered experience that you have. So there's a lot to explore there with ketamine. This is so exciting. I'm just very <laughs> excited. <laughs> you know, because I think mental health is obviously a passion of ours. And I, I hope that this like kind of let people realize that there's this like exciting frontier that, mm -hmm. you know, in the next few years will be available to more people. I'm fangirling over psychedelics. Um, <laughs> <laughs> would you like to play a game show? Okay, great. So you and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have. And then you would tell me what you would do in that situation. And then I just get to decide whose answer I like more. Okay. <laughs> Very regimented. <laughs> okay. So our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? You find out that 10 years ago, 
your partner of 27 years heavily made out with a coworker because they were super mad at you after you made fun of their new haircut. They have not cheated before or since. Would you stay with this cheater? I'm just struck by how super specific this example is. So <laughs> I, I don't know from where, but I suspect it's a true story for someone. They are so specific. <laughs> Allison makes them up and they are always this specific. But it's really made up. Okay, okay. I, I would, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, it was, it was a long time ago. How did I find out? They confessed to you one night because they had been eating them up. Oh, that's even better. They admitted <laughs> it rather than, you know, just being caught. Because they had just gotten a new haircut and you complimented it. And that just like brought all the feelings rushing back. Who's the coworker? The coworker, they still work with the coworker. That's a little... Does the coworker like like them? Like, is the coworker waiting for us to split up? No, the coworker just loves to make out. Yeah, they're still friends, but they haven't like made out in ten years. Ooh, they're still friends, so that's interesting. It thickens the plot. <laughs> Was there an emotional connection on the part of of your partner? No, they were just so mad at you that you made fun of their haircut. <laughs> okay, there's some interesting psychological research that, that like on average. Women are more interested in the emotional connection. Like if someone cheated, like, yeah. did you really love her or not? Men are more interested in what happened. Did you actually get physical? Which, which <laughs> I know the first thing I noted was, well, okay, you made out. That's not great, but at least you didn't have sex, you know? Like, <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, it's true. They weren't that mad at you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, whatever. I'll stay. It's been 27 years. What am I going to do? Start over? Go on whatever the kids are using as Hinge or Bumble nowadays? Forget it. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good answer. But you have to make sure that you're very complimentary of their haircuts moving forward. (laughs) That's my relationship advice. (laughs) If your partner gets a haircut and you don't say anything, you deserve whatever happens to you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Our next game. Is this a date? You swim at a public pool. One day, you are in a lane by yourself when a good-looking stranger asks if they can share with you. When you point out that there are free lanes, they explain they prefer to share a lane because it motivates them to swim faster. Every time they swim past you, they do a little wave. Is this a date? Do people typically share lanes? Yeah. I'm going to say this is not a date. You don't think so? I'm not sure I need to ask clarifying questions. It's not a date. (laughs) But they're doing a little wave. And when you take breaks between laps, you're chatting with them. Hmm. It might be a good situation to prompt a, a date, but I, I, I don't know. I would I would think it would be very weird if you had, like, in that person's presence afterwards, referred to that as a date. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and they're like, oh, hold on a second. Like, moving a little fast here. That's your first date. Like, if you got, okay, let me ask you a question, Allison. Yeah. Later, you get into a relationship with this person. Uh-huh. You're trying to pick your anniversary. Right. It would be that day. That day would be your anniversary. <laughs> okay, interesting. Right. And I agree with that. <laughs> you know, after the fact, when, but, but, but that's different. You know, early on, I think folks are going to be, you know, skittish about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going to give you a, a bird's eye view of the pool. No one else is in the pool and you're sharing <laughs> a lane. I mean, it should definitely be a sign that this, <laughs> this person is interested, right? It's a great convert. I mean, that person is very smooth. Yeah, in my position, I, I would make sure in that case, I'd be like doing a lot of this, making sure now my aura ring is bigger, but make sure they could see my like wedding ring just to kind of 
Like, go ahead and just kind of randomly draw the conversation. Oh, yeah, my wife, like, yeah, she's into that too. Yeah, it was sort of just because I'd be getting enough of a vibe that there was something like there. But uh, yeah, I would be furious. That's the thing. As a married man, I would, I would let, I'm presuming it's a her for me, be in that lane and swim. Um, I wouldn't kick her out and I wouldn't consider myself as having cheated on my wife. I might consider it kind of weird and I might think that, oh, maybe there's a possibility that person's into me, but, you know, whatever, didn't let it go anywhere. I wear, you wear your wedding ring in the pool? Yeah. Okay. Well, now you've got it because there are people out there Good try to share your lane. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, that's the excuse. That's, watch out for those guys that take the- They ring. take the wedding ring off in the pool. They think chlorine is going to affect it. Or, <laughs> no, no, no. What's this, when the, the, the Secret Service got busted years ago from all kinds of shenanigans and they had an expression like wheels up, rings off. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Wow. That's that cool. Like, yeah, don't trust the guy saying they're, the chlorine is going to ruin their wedding ring. <laughs> Watch out for those guys. That is solid advice to our listenership, honestly. It really is. <laughs> That's more important than whether or not it was a date. Um, <laughs> okay. Our final game. Are you a terrible parent? Your child, Ben, age 12, has started to act out by randomly shouting curse words at the top of his lungs in public. To get him to stop whenever he does this, you immediately shout, Ben still wets the bed at the top of your lungs. Are you a terrible parent? (laughs) Ooh, I've got a four-year-old, so this isn't terrain that I've jumped into yet. I would say no, just because I'm like, you got to have a lot of tolerance for parents. I mean, like, like, what does it truly take to be terrible parent? And again, one sense, we're all, every parent is terrible because there's always those low points because it's really tough. Mm-hmm. But like, that's not much in the scheme of things. I would say, <laughs> no, you're not a terrible parent. You, it might, it might have been the wrong move. You know, you might say, oh, I was really a jerk. That, but like, I don't think you're a terrible parent. I think it's something you should apologize for as a parent. Like, yeah, I shouldn't have said that. But see, you don't think it's an effective parenting technique to get them to stop shouting curse words? I'm not sure about that. It depends. <laughs> the proof is in the pudding. I, I wonder if they stopped or not. It, they might be. But I mean, there's plenty of effective. I mean, you know, physical violence might be effective. It doesn't make it right. You know? Yeah. Um, so it's a very I'm good not point. Sure if it really comes down to its effectiveness or not. I think that's a great idea. And I think you're a great parent. <laughs> <laughs> You want to play, buddy? I'll play right back. <laughs> I'll play right back. Yeah, for me, the key is like there's such a range here and you've seen you see so much with bad parenting that that hardly even counts. <laughs> totally. Even if it's not optimal, it's like, yeah. We'll allow it. <laughs> right. I mean, there's other stuff like, it's like, you know, people putting like soda in like, you know, the baby bottle. It's like, what's going on? What are you doing? <laughs> like, really? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Go-go juice. Remember? With Honey Boo Boo and they put Mountain Dew in her bottle or whatever. Oh, I wasn't even thinking of that. Wow. And they called it Go-Go Juice so she could go do her pageants. Oh, my God. <laughs> Putting your kid in a pageant, I would say that probably <laughs> qualifies for terrible parent. I'll, I'll, I'll say that. Yeah, that's not a good formula. I agree with that. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find out more about all the amazing research you're doing? So our, our site, hopkinspsychedelic.org, we're easy to find. And all of our current studies that we're recruiting for are listed there. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at drug underscore researcher. Check me out there. 
Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on. This was so like informative and wonderful. And I think our audience will be super interested in it. So we You're appreciate welcome. it. I really enjoyed the game. Actually, <laughs> like, this has been great. I really like this. Oh, yay. We'll have to have you back. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I would do it. Yay. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad your favorite part was the game. <laughs> <laughs> I talk about psychedelics all the time. Sure. <laughs> we don't get to play enough games this summer. <laughs> we need more of that. Thank you so much. All right, guys. Take care. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about brand deals. Just between us, it's time for topic X X X X X X X baby baby. Oh my god! Okay, brand deals. Let's go. How do you feel about brand deals? Okay, so in the very beginning of YouTube, it was like such a big deal, and it was like this thing that people saw us do and like knew about, and it was like you had really positioned us in a way where you were like, we love money, so people were actually <laughs> happy for us when we had brand deals. Then it got twisted in the middle, not just for us, but for everybody who like works as like a content creator or whatever. It got twisted where people like hated it. And there was like a huge backlash and everyone was mad about it. And then now it's kind of gone back to being, I feel like, really commonplace. And like a lot of people are doing brand deals in a way that is like subtle. So like friends of mine who work in the financial sphere, they're not necessarily going on their their Instagram and doing like buy a Capital One card. But they are like, let's say, like working behind the scenes with Capital One or like doing, you know, something with American Express or uh, putting stuff on their website. Like it's it's morphed into like consulting or like business, whatever, more so than front facing type stuff. But also the front facing stuff, people are more forgiving of it, I think, in my experience, because they're like. They've un- come to understand, like, this is just like a commercial during a Hulu show. Like, sure, whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's the way we make money, you know? And so mm-hmm. I feel I feel very pro-brand deals, but I also feel like you kind of have to be vigilant about what which ones you accept. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, for even for this show, like the ads on this show, we are very good with ads. Like, we pick good ads. Bad with money, I used to be a lot more picky about it. And then... I stopped being, but like now sometimes I listen back to the episodes and I'm like, it's too much, I think. And I really appreciate certain shows like You're Wrong About that don't do ads. But at the same time, that show has like a huge Patreon. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, they don't really need ads. um, Whereas we do. (laughs) Yeah, we've also turned down quite a few sponsors for this show. Oh, yeah. We turned down a lot of stuff that has to do with like meat A lot of stuff that has to do with alcohol. Some wellness stuff we've turned down. We had a whole thing where we both misunderstood what the product was, said yes to the ad, got the product, and then was like, no, we can't support this. Yeah, returned it. I mean, (laughs) and the thing is, here's the thing, is that like you guys listening, we lose a significant amount of money doing that. Like being picky with stuff, I think we lose a lot, at least speaking for myself, we lose a lot of money being picky. But I think it's important because it's also it's different than just having a TV show and having random commercials air during the TV show because we're the ones vocalizing our support for these things. Exactly. Yeah. So it's tough. It's interesting that you have to give like a personal experience or that you have to talk about something that you've personally used. But It's also like 
I see other shows that just like will do whatever. And I count the money that we lose. I mean, even like Bad With Money, for example, I mean, it's a money show, right? So a lot of the ads that would naturally come in are money products. And I don't want to shill money products on a money show, even though the ad segment of the company would be like, but why? That's what matches. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. I know, but I can't like sit here and be like credit cards can be dangerous and then be like, especially not the new, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I feel that way with like wellness, mental health stuff on this show that like mm-hmm. we have to be kind of extra vigilant with that. Mm-hmm. It's also tough. It's like, you know, we make a living through like a lot of piecemeal stuff. And mm-hmm. so brand deals are like a big part of that. Also feeling like, how do I make the content interesting and enough? And then also mm-hmm. the stress of like, working with these brands and doing it exactly the the way that they want. And then like Mm -hmm. you have like this time limit and you have to get it approved in this time limit. And then you got to get like, it's all very stressful too. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, it's been interesting navigating gender in this stuff too, because there's some things where I'll get a lot of offers of being like women based, whatever, which a lot of times, let me tell you something. What does that mean? Like, it's (laughs) like, if it's something for a product that like, is gender neutral but they'll be like get this for your dad or like this is for boys only or this is for girls only i'm sort of like i understand that you're using that for marketing but also like you're cutting out an entire half of a consumer base for no reason the product doesn't require any specific set of genitals and also like what am i meant to do with that (laughs) some brands have been super open like a lot of times what i say is they'll i'll get a pitch like oh you can you do this for our brand and One of the things I write back is I'll be like, I'll do it if I can make the language gender neutral. Mm, mm -hmm. I would 99.9% of brands are like, go for it. Yeah, that's great. I think I'm helping them reach an entirely new base. And that they're being a little more conscientious to the consumer. Yeah, I did an ad a long time ago for Harry's Razors where I did it on Bad With Money and it was was like supposed to be for Father's Day. And I was like, Harry's Razors, shave or don't, whatever gender you are, happy day. Okay, bye. And (laughs) I remember a friend of mine texted me to be like, that was the most woke razor ad I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) I like went so out of my way. But they let me. They let me. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's always interesting to see how people react to it, but also having to be like, okay, well, I, I also have to like kind of prioritize like my financial health and like mm-hmm. you know that like taking that risk of potentially upsetting some people. Like when we would do like the HelloFresh ads on the JBU channel, you know that required like a, a good couple minutes to the product. But then I feel like we always made an effort to like make the rest of that episode good. Here's the other thing, guys. Allison and I have been making content for you that you could access largely for free for the last like almost eight years. (laughs) So sit through a two minute ad. Sit through a two minute ad. You know what? I'm sorry. If you've been watching us since middle school and we post something on Instagram showing a product, sign up. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, people are warped in that they don't realize that the amount of shit that we put out that is free, free, free 99, okay? And, and then you're like, why did you make me listen to a minute of ads? Oh, so sorry to bother you. Listen to the goddamn ad. I don't care if you've heard it a thousand times. You better listen to that ad. As a, as a listener, I would like you to think about where me and Allison's money comes from. Where do we get money from? You know what I mean? 
this is our job. And like, also you're like, oh, your job is to talk into a microphone with your friend. It's more than that. You got riled. I feel like I was being yelled at. I'm like, I I like your ads. I'll wash your ads. (laughs) I feel like you and I do so much work, invisible work. I think everybody does. Yeah, I know. Like when I see on Instagram, like somebody that posted like an ad, Mm -hmm. I like the picture. Because I know that that picture will probably not do as well for them Mm -hmm. or whatever. And, you know, obviously, like, there's been a lot of of stuff going on that discourages brand deals in that regard. Like, I think Instagram and, like, specific platforms have purposefully made it more difficult for influencers to do brand deals because the algorithm doesn't favor them and they want you to do, like, Instagram shop or whatever rather than, you know, so, like, a lot of revenue has been taken away. It's a scary business. It's changed all the time. And you try to supplement like we don't have a nine to five. Like, you know, we don't have like a paycheck at the end of the week. Well, I get under minimum wage paid by USC. Okay. (laughs) 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 We value our teachers here in the US. Right. Everything comes in little pieces and we are hyper vigilant about what we what we promote. And I'll also like sometimes when I don't want to do brand deals that are woman specific, there's a gift that I love of a little girl just throwing money out of a window. And that's what I feel like sometimes. <laughs> like if I was like more of a sellout, you know, but instead I'm a good person. Melissa, want to come share your thoughts on brand deals? This is something that honestly makes me very angry when people, listeners or watchers or viewers, anybody that's consuming content gets angry about brand deals, advertising, et cetera. Cause it's like people are spending their time mm-hmm. to create entertainment for you. You can watch it or you don't have to watch it. And then second, there's a lot of things that go into making videos, making podcasts, et cetera. There's like editing, there's people that are producing it. There's just, there's a lot of things that have to get paid research, for. Research, picking like, questions, yes. the time of the day that it takes for, you know, us to put together Allison writing hypotheticals. I mean, you think those come out of thin air? They really don't. Exactly. It's a nightmare. <laughs> exactly. And so even like, um, for example, like with mm-hmm. my podcast, Don't Blame Me, we, we have a video, we do video for the whole show. And, um, it used to be where um, before dynamic insertion was really a thing, they would count video views towards Ugh. numbers for the show. When they started doing dynamic insertion, they stopped counting the video views. So therefore it looked like our numbers dropped. Um. And so we told our people that like to watch the videos that like, hey, we can no longer, if you guys want to watch video, we're putting mm-hmm. it on Patreon. We can no longer put it on YouTube because there's we can't pay for like the editing for it because we're not getting paid for this. And people got mad at us for this. It's like, first of all, the, it, the video is extra. Mm. It's always bonus. You can listen to the actual podcast for free. Listen yeah. to the ads yeah. there. Or you can pay $1 a month for four videos. Like, what are you mad about? People got used to things for free. Yeah. But they don't understand that, like, again, like, if you pay extra for Hulu without ads, if you watch television, there's ads. Mm -hmm. During Jeopardy, I have to hear about the Good Feet store every single time. Okay? (laughs) And I do it. What do we rate this episode? I will rate it 47 out of 42 psilocybins. 
Nice. I will rate it 30 out of 29. Forgive yourselves. Oh, I'll give it 50 out of 40 little waves. As you pass <laughs> by <in the> pool. <laughs> oh, tiny waves. Tiny waves in a swimming pool. It's a wave and a wave. Two waves. <laughs> Double, Double wave. wave. I love when the guests enjoy the game show. Nothing brings me more joy. Absolutely. Our guest, Matthew, really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. They don't get to play a lot in science. Yeah, his face really lit up. Um. <laughs> Thank you to Matthew W. Johnson for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa D. Montz. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brandon Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or on our channel, youtube.com slash justbetweenusshow. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, patreon.com slash Gabby Dunn and patreon.com slash emotional support lady at Allison Raskin, at Gabby Road, and at She Is Not Melissa on Instagram. Bye! Bye! Forever! Yeah.